1: Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Anna Lee Huber about her Lady Darby Mysteries, a series of 11 novels, most recently A Fatal Illusion. I was drawn to these books by their setting. Most of them take place in Scotland during the 1830s. The Regency has ended, and in fact George IV has died, leaving his brother William as king, But the Victorian era has yet to begin. When we meet the series' heroine, Kira, Lady Darby, in The Anatomist's Wife, she is a young widow in her mid-twenties. By the time A Fatal Illusion opens just two years later, however, a great deal has changed. August, 1832, Yorkshire, England. Wait, Kira, my husband Sebastian Gage called as he guided his horse to the edge of the road. It's best to let the coach go first down this hill i pulled up on fig's reins bringing the strawberry roan into line with gage's chestnut gelding as our carriage lumbered over the crest of the ridge with our coachman skilfully handling the ribbons as it began its descent though not as treacherous as it had once been the slope leading down into the gorge was still quite formidable I well remembered my first journey south on the Great North Road some ten or eleven years past, before a new road had been cut out of the limestone rock through which the river went flowed. We'd clung to the walls of the coach as we'd been driven down the precipitous path into the narrow valley, and then were forced to walk alongside the carriage as we ascended, in order to alleviate some of the weight for the horses as they toiled back up the other side. In the years since, I've been exposed to some colorful curses by the coachmen of The Passing Mail and stagecoaches who regularly drove this route, all of whom despise the nuisance of this stretch of road as much as the rest of us. And now, please join me in welcoming Anna Lee Huber. Hi Anna, I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, thank you so
0: much for having me.
1: At this point, I've read all the books in this series, as well as most of your Verity Kent novels. What drew you to 1830s Scotland and Lady Darby? So
0: the 1830s, I pretty much picked because it wasn't done a lot. That was one of the reasons. Um, There's a lot of Regency set um, series, especially in mystery, and a lot of Victorian because, you know, Sherlock Holmes, that's always, you know, popular. But 1830s is kind of this era that gets skipped over a lot. Um, It's not really... It's classified as Georgian, but it's after George the Fourth has died, and it's you know, before Victoria, so it's William the Fourth. it's this little slice of time. And it's a majorly important era because there's so many reforms that happen at this time, especially in politics. There's the Catholic Reform Act and the Anatomy Act and all of these different things. And so there's a lot of upheaval and changes and some fascinating history that, when I was doing research, I'd never even heard of. And I thought this is just absolutely perfect for a mystery series. And then once I kind of decided what the backstory was going to be for my heroine and everything with the anatomists and body snatchers and all that. And this is kind of the end of the era of that. It's Burke and Hare is late, you know, 1820s. Um, the, the, body snatchers turned murderers in Edinburgh, the famous ones and all that. So it was just kind of the perfect little era to just kind of make my own. I just decided I'd settle in there. So um, and Lady Darby, actually, she was the first thing that came to me for this series. I was working on something else um, trying to be published because my Lady Darby novel, The Anatomist's Wife, the first book was my first published book. But before that, I was working on some other things. And just all of a sudden, this voice in my head kept talking to me. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I let her talk to me. So I I set aside what I was working and I was like, I'll just give her a chapter or two. I'll just see what she has to say. And she basically just told me the beginning of Anatomist's Wife, the first chapter or two. And then I, I stopped and I set it aside and I finished the other thing I was working on. And then when I came back to it, I was like, okay, I've got to figure out now who is this person. I had no idea where it was set or when it was set or who she was or any of her backstory. I just knew what she was telling me at the beginning. And that was really the start of the series and the, my introduction to Lady Darby. <laughs> One of the things that
1: drew me to the series in the first place was precisely that, that it was set in the 1830s, which is not so usual, and set in Scotland, which my family is from Scotland. So um, I was drawn to it for that reason. But it, yeah, it was the fact that it wasn't Regency and it wasn't Victorian that made me want to read it in the first place. And I was very glad that I did.
0: Yeah, there's it's a fun it's a fun era. It's like seven years, you know, be- before Victoria takes the the, the throne, but it's just this little slice, and there's a, so much interesting stuff, and there's fun things to play with. like The fashion of that era, I like to say, is probably some of the ugliest, <laughs> the huge, massive sleeves. I mean, when you look at the pictures, they seem so ridiculous, and so I, I like to toy with even just those little things, you know, because what would a portrait artist, how in the world would they maneuver with these sleeves, you know? So, um, yeah, so it's a lot of fun. And Scotland, I just adore Scotland. I've visited, and it's, it's just beautiful. There's so much to play with there.
1: Yes, you're right about the fashion. I mean, and not just the the sleeves, which Kira hates, but the um, the hairdos. You know, they all have these sort yeah. of curly, weird, curly hairdos <laughs>
0: that stick straight up in the middle. And yes, it's just a very different era. It really <laughs> it is repeated for a good reason. <laughs> so Kira is
1: at a low point, although not the lowest point in her life, when we first encounter her in the Anatomist's wife. What can you tell us about her background?
0: So we find out fairly early on that, you know, she is, her main passion is art. She loves art. She loves to paint. And that's really all she wants to do with her life. But as a gentlewoman, you know, of course, she's expected to marry a well-to-do person. um, But she's also just kind of an awkward person. She's not into going to balls and things. And so she just asks her father to arrange a marriage for her. And he believes he's arranging this great marriage with this, um, anatomist who actually, you know, was a surgeon for the, the King. Um, he's, you know, kind of a new, um, baronet and he arranges this marriage and he's willing to let her keep painting. And so she's perfectly happy because she, she still gets to paint. Lo and behold, nobody understands or knows that his real intentions, um, Sir Anthony Darby, is that he is working on a definitive anatomy textbook. And this is pre, a precursor to Gray's Anatomy, which happens about a decade later. Um, and all this is obviously fictionalized. Um, but Sir Anthony Darby wants to write this anatomy textbook, and he needs someone to draw the, um, the, the drawings in the book. And he doesn't want to share the credit, So he decides, well, she's a portrait artist. I can, my wife can do this. And so she is, this is an era where women, they weren't even gentlewomen and middle-class women were, they were discouraged or forbidden to even attend funerals. You know, they did not have, they were not around dead bodies. They were not, this was scandalous. And so she is forced to sketch his dissections for this book. And, you know, it's kind of horrifying for her because she's not prepared for it at all. And it's in an era where it's, you know, the smells and all those kind of things um in this era of body snatchers there's all this scandal that surrounds this kind of occupation and when he dies it comes out that she's that she has helped and so she's just ostracized and she's you know seen as this figure of to be feared almost by the press and by the the society in london the lower class even and so She's basically in hiding at the beginning of the book, um, you know, licking her wounds. And her marriage was not a happy one. Her husband was not kind. Um, and so there's a lot of things we learn about that. And, you know, her trying to figure out, you know, where where does she go from there, from that lowest point?
1: And talk a bit more about her personality. As you note, she is not a very um, socially uh, oriented person. Um, and she's definitely not what we... Imagine a typical Victorian woman to have been, although I think it's probably that's part of the problem is our imagining rather than the reality. But tell us about her.
0: Yeah, so she's definitely not the sort social butterfly. She just—it's not her gift, and that was one thing I really wanted my heroine to be. I—I've I re, read so many wonderful mystery series where the women—the woman—is just. She, she knows everybody and everybody talks to her because they just confide in her and 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 it's a great tool for being able to investigate but i thought well what if the woman isn't woman isn't that way what if what if i make the hero more of the charmer and so, you know, then you get to play with a different type of personality type. She's just awkward. She doesn't know. She just, she doesn't um, inherently understand, you know, how to make small talk and all those kind of things. Um, she, she'd rather just be alone. She'd rather just have her small, loyal group of friends and family that she cares for. Um, and so, you know, her having to go out and investigate is really pushing past her boundaries. And when she meets Gage, uh, Sebastian Gage, who... Becomes her investigative partner and her romantic partner, you know, she really has to grow and learn and stretch herself and, you know, find that in, in herself to be able to do those investigations. Um, and yeah, like you said, Victorian, you know, we have these ideas of how they were. But when you dig into the research, there's always been women that push the boundaries. There's always been women that were felt awkward in society. Uh, you know, I think to myself, if I lived in that era, I would probably be really awkward at balls, you know, <laughs> and things like that. I'm like, so sometimes it's like, this is probably how I would react is how I, I think of when I'm writing Kira. Um, but yes, so, you know, she's different than the typical Victorian woman, but she definitely fits within the parameters of some of the women we we do read about um, that, you know, they were women who were doing science and doing medicine and things in small ways or working with their husbands or, or, you know, um, fathers or brothers or things like that.
1: Her uh, art is very important to her, as you mentioned, and she is a gifted portrait painter, but I also get the impression that um, her art and her ability to see, beyond what people want you to see is a large part of her gift as an investigator.
0: Yes, definitely. I, you know, that was a, preconceived notion i mean when i decided you know and i gave her her backstory and this is going to be a murder mystery series and i didn't want her to be the social darling i was like what can i give her that she can really contribute to an investigation and it was one the anatomy knowledge that she gained you know unwillingly from her first husband but also that portraits are his ability to to look at someone and see things that others don't see um you know, that's what that's one of the you know biggest gifts of artists. You know, they obviously that just to being able to depict it, but it's them being able to see what we cannot see, and so that just is such a important you know skill that she possesses that she can see in others and either reading their their expressions or understanding there's something going on in the subtext. Um, of what they're saying that you know maybe not other people notice um, or even at a at a crime scene and that she can she can spot things that are off or about the body that others wouldn't necessarily notice and it's definitely probably her biggest asset that she brings to her investigations for sure.
1: Before we get to Gage, who is such an important character, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Kira's family, who are supporting her at that very early point in her life when she's still recovering from her husband's uh, death and the resulting scandal. Uh, She is especially close to her sister, Alana, and I'm sorry, Alana's husband, Philip. But it is a somewhat complicated relationship, as relationships between sisters do tend to be. Can you talk about that a bit?
0: Yes, so family is really, really important to me, and you know, of course, in this era, most families they were you know fairly large, even the um more upper class families and so I knew I wanted to have this cast of you know siblings and things um around her um and so it just felt felt natural and and like you said famil- familial relationships are always just so complicated i mean like you know and and with Alana and Kira. You know Alana also kind of took over as her mother in some ways because their mother died when um Kira was only eight years old. So you know it's that complicates it even further. And so, you know Alana feels very protective of Kira, especially because she's she is awkward in society. She doesn't naturally feel like she fits in. And so Alana feels that protective instinct. But then, as we naturally would, you know, Kira pushes back against that. She doesn't, you know, there's there's at the beginning of the of the series we find she, you know Kira's been hiding. She's been happy to just go along with whatever her sister wants because she's just in such an emotionally damaged place that she's just she's just grateful that her sister and brother-in-law are protecting her and loving her and supporting her when so many other people have turned their back on her. And so she's just more than happy to do what go along with whatever Alana would like her to do or think or be. And, you know, as the series grows on, she starts to reassert herself more and realize she doesn't think the same way as her sister. And so it's, it's, it's like a sisterly relationship. It's almost like a motherly daughterly relationship also. Um, And even with her brother, there's, there's instances, you know, where um, they are protective of each other or trying to get away from each other or all those it's a push and pull. I feel like siblings. A lot of times, there's a lot of push and pull, just inherent in the in the relationship. And so it's just a it's an interesting dichotomy to explore.
1: It is, and it really rounds Kira out in a lot of ways. Um, yes. The other way that she is rounded out is, as you mentioned, by uh, Sebastian Gage. And um, I don't want to give much away because we're already two years into. Uh, the series at this point, but it's pretty clear from a very early point that she and Gage are gonna to get together one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about him. He is in many ways
0: Kira's opposite. Yes, he is. He is the charming golden darling of the ton. Everyone loves him. He's invited to everything to round out the numbers, the you know, they're courting him for, you know, their daughters or, you know, they want to be his friend. He's that kind of man. Um, and his father is a newly minted lord, and he himself also is that kind of character that, you know, he's got powerful friends, and he's useful to these powerful friends. Um, his father was is, was in the Royal Navy and transitioned. He actually sailed with King William IV. He was in the Navy um, 30 years before he became king because he wasn't ever anticipated to be king, you know. Um, he was George IV's brother, so he was in the navy, and Lord Gage actually served with him. So he has all these powerful connections that he's come up with. And once George, the, excuse me, William IV is um, becomes king, he makes Lord Gage uh, Baron. Um, but he, over the last decade or more, has done these, in, you know, inquiries for gentlemen and powerful men that need help with various things investigations and his son has brought his son along into this business. Basically. Um, it's a way of exerting power and gauge has gone along with it because he himself has had some rough patches in the 1820s. He served, he, he, he went on his um, grand tour and he actually ended up fighting in the Greek war for independence from Turkey. And, you know, that's, that's the war that, um, Lord Baron got involved with Oh no, excuse me. Um, the poet, I'm forgetting his name. Lord <laughs> Byron. Lord Byron. Thank you. I'm like, uh, I'm like, I'm, I almost have it right. <laughs> anyway, um, the poet, he was also involved in that war. So, and some things that happened there, and just other things. And so, Gage is kind of he's damaged. He's damaged from previous, you know, his, his familiar life wasn't the best when he was younger, and so he's gone along, he's, he works with his father, but he's different from his father. He's intensely loyal. He's not necessarily uncomfortable with flexing these power muscles. Um, and he is, you know, kind of in a moment of transition also at the beginning of the Adam's wife, he's in some way, in many ways run away from some things that his father wants him to do that he's not, um, uncomfortable with. He, he does not want to do. And so, He's kind of in that moment of transition also and meets Kira, and she's just so very different. And he's instantly fascinated. And the fact that she can bring so much to his, the investigation, their first one that they embark on, and it just kind of sparks a lot of things um, within him and within her, obviously. And and we see how that progresses through the series. He does have a somewhat troubled relationship with his
1: father. It's very different from... Um... Kira's relationship with her brother and brother-in-law and well, brother and brother-in-law and sister.
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, Lord Gage, I always think of he's kind of a character you love to hate. I mean, he is just he's perfectly awful to Akira because he's she's not the woman that he wants his son to marry. And he's just very, you know, even with his son, he 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 values um, strength and independence, but he also wants his son to do exactly what he says. And so in in Gage's case, there's no he he can't win. There's no way he can win. He he'll his he can't be strong and he can't toe under at the same time. So. Um, you know, it's, it's a kind of push and pull difficult relationship and Kira has to learn to navigate it and and figure out how to get along as best she can. And, you know, as the series progresses, we learn more and more things. And in this latest book that's coming out, A Fatal Illusion, we finally learn a lot more about Lord Gage's backstory and we start to understand why he is the way he is. Um, and even in the next book that I'm working on now, we even get even more into that, um, And so, you know, he's, yeah, I just, I always think of him as that character we just love to hate because he's perfectly awful in so many ways. Go to
1: your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price, line. He is, although I have to say I was very glad when I got into this book and this newest one and realized that we were going to find out a bit about him because even, I mean, there are hints of it even in earlier ones because nobody is all bad or all good
0: that's that's very important for me to always make clear there's always some motivation and reason almost always that some that people are the way they are yeah
1: so despite his troubled family history uh the younger gage it's a little it's not confusing when you're reading it but for listeners uh, we should be clear that the younger gage is referred to as gage and and his father is lord gage so gage doesn't hesitate to respond when he res- he gets word that his father has been attacked so sketch the scene for us at the opening of a fatal illusion
0: yes so at the end of the previous book a perilous perspective they were um sebastian gage and his wife kira are at a wedding in um, Argyle, Scotland, so pretty far out, um, up north, you know not not totally completely all the way up north, but pretty far away, and they get a letter from his father's valet that his, that Lord Gage has been attacked. and of course, at this point in their relationship, it's extremely strained because of some things that Sebastian's learned about his father that he's been keeping from him. He thought they were reconciling, and now it's just even worse. And so, um, and he's just had his first daughter born and Lord Gage is anxious to meet his granddaughter and all these things. And so learning that he's attacked, it's kind of a shock because he always thought they would have time to reconcile. So they race are racing to Yorkshire where Lord Gage was, Lord Gage was attacked. And as they're approaching the village, Wentbridge that, that his father was attacked in is staying. Um, you know, they don't know. Did he survive? Are they going to arrive to find that he's dead? Or are they going to find him dying? Or is he recovered? So there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and just, you know, mixed emotions to their approach. And what do they find when they get there? So they arrive at the home of the local surgeon, uh, Dr. Barker, who has taken in um, Lord Gage and tended his wounds. And, you know, he's still in a precarious position. He was And he almost died from a fever and all these things, but he's at least being cared for. He's at least alive and as persnickety and grumpy and horrible as ever (laughs) um you know, towards his son uh sons. And so they arrive to, you know, to at least have that relief, but then they have to wonder, is he going to survive? And who attacked him and why, and when some suspicious things start happening to them and they are put in danger, you know, it really becomes um, important that they figure out what's, what's going on here.
1: The doctor is actually a very interesting character in his own right. Tell us a bit about him before he settled in Yorkshire.
0: So Dr. Barker is based off of a historical figure. I won't give it away because it might give away some of the plot. But he was a surgeon for the um, the army, the British Army. He w- worked at the hospital during the Napoleonic Wars, and then he was sent to South Africa. He was a surgeon there; he was fairly um, high up in the ranks, and you know he did some a very skilled surgeon. He he performed several um, procedures that were very tricky, and was he was successful at. Um, and then he inherits some money from an uncle and he decides it's time to just retire. And he comes back to England um, and just happens to be in the area and, you know, stumbles upon his wife and who ends up being his wife. And he just decides to settle in that area. And so he's kind of a gentleman surgeon who he still works. He still treats the people of the area, but he doesn't really need to work. He has enough income that he could just be a, a, a man of leisure.
1: Because uh, Gage and Kira are in an area where they don't really know anyone, Um, they don't know whom to trust uh, while they are looking to find out who might have wanted Lord Gage dead. They don't even quite trust the doctor because they sense that there's something there that they don't know about, I guess. Um, But they do have allies. At this point in the series, uh, in the form of Anderly and Bree, uh, tell us well, what should we
0: know about them? Yeah, so Anderly is Gage's valet, and Bree is Kira's lady's maid. They have kind of Kira and Sebastian have kind of formed this um, team, almost with their with their staff. It's kind of almost humorous that that the people they end up hiring. They almost they hire them for their positions, but also for their, you know, how will they do in an inquiry almost is what it becomes. I mean, even their butler who's not with them at this point, he gets involved and um, their daughter's nanny in some ways gets involved. But the main two are definitely Anderle and Bree. you know, naturally as their valet and ladies mate, they're always with them. They're very intimate with them. Um, Gage, you know, there's a backstory to how he met Anderly and they've worked on, um, inquiries together for over a decade. And Bree, you know, jumps right into the fire after, you know, she, she becomes Kira's lady's and shortly after when she marries Gage and they continue these investigations. And so, and, and they're, their servants, but they're also almost like family and they're co-investigators. And it's kind of a fine balance though, because, you know, there is that inequality, you know, um, because they are staff versus, you know, employers and, but they're still friends and and they still investigate and they bring so many skills to the investigation and just also moments of humor and levity and, and different things and, and can kind of bring their um, employers down a peg when needed. <laughs> so, um, so they're a lot of fun, but it allows me to kind of branch out and send investigators in different areas and send people down into the service quarters and all these things that, I couldn't do with just the two, um, upper class, um, man and woman. So, yeah.
1: Yes, right. Exactly. Um, many of the novels in this series draw for inspiration on historical events, uh, such as the 1830s cholera epidemic or social unrest in Edinburgh. This novel highlights the UK's slow extension of voting rights. Tell us about the Grangemore rising and why you decided to include it in your story.
0: So one of the things I love to do is kind of include history that's not always necessarily known very well. Um, like, like for example, earlier in the series, everyone knows about the, you know, Burke and Hare from Edinburgh, or most people do. It's a fairly popular, you know, um, subject that people have heard of. But I had never heard of the London Burkers. And so in an earlier book, I wrote about the London Burkers and how fascinating everything is around that. So in this book, I was doing research for Yorkshire and I'm just wondering what had happened in, around this time period and, and earlier, and I stumbled across this Grange Moor Rising, and it was really part of a larger uprising. Many people have heard of the Peterloo Massacre, uh, which happened, I believe, eighteen nineteen, and where you know people were, you know, kind of after the war, the the economy, you know, just slumped, and the Corn Laws, and all these things, and there was people their income decreased and they were there was a lot of poor horrible conditions especially along with the industrialization of a lot of the industries in the midlands so these weavers and things were losing their jobs to machines or you know just the fact that the economy had slumped so much and the government wasn't really looking out for them and they initially tried to advocate and tried to go about it in the right way to get them to support them, to help them to pass laws, to fix these problems. But the government actually made it worse. I mean, the Peterloo massacre happened where people were, you know, shot that were, you know, it was a peaceful rally and, and they were trampled, excuse me, not shot by this cavalry that, you know, the, the British government that, um, they reacted poorly and it was, it was a terrible event, but then it turned on the working class instead of, well, the, well, it was the government's fault. So there was a lot of uh, frustration because the government wasn't listening. And so peaceful protesting wasn't working. And so then they started to turn to more violent um, uprising. Um, and so these Grange Moor Rising was part of this larger uprising that was supposed to happen, you know, even up into Scotland. Um, and where people were going to, you know, come together with weapons and they were, you know, these political meetings, um, which the government passed laws about not allowing political meetings and all these different things. And so they were going to, you know, march together and march into these certain towns and take over these towns. And um, it ended up not coming too much because the the organization of it just kind of flubbed um, or the government was able to find out enough information that they suppressed it. But I, this whole era, there's, there's a lot of information around it that I just found very interesting that I'd never heard about it. And, you know, as an American, we tend to feel, you know, especially um, for these kind of people that, you know, oh, they should have rights, you know. So um, and it, we've had events like that in, in America also. But, yeah, it was an era that I'd never heard about. It particularly affected this, you know, Yorkshire area, especially the Midlands with these weavers. And so uh, it was just a fascinating way to get to explore it.
1: We've mentioned broken hair a couple of times, but I'm not sure that everybody actually does know uh, what that is. And it's an important context for the novels. So could you give us a quick and dirty um, recap of who they were and what they did?
0: Yes. Yeah, so it, about 1828, I believe, is is the year that they started um they were in edinburgh they were just two people that two men that were like laborers that worked in edinburgh and one of them actually owned a boarding house along with a woman and um, and one of their boarders died and they were like well this is the era of the body snatcher where so the the anatomy schools in edinburgh and london and other places they were they relied on to be able to teach their future doctors. They search for future surgeons, but the government only legally allowed them to dissect the bodies of executed murderers. Well, there was not even close to enough bodies that was to train all their students. And so these medical schools They started, that's what started the body snatcher trade because they needed these cadavers where, you know, the body snatchers would go to the cemeteries, they would dig up recently deceased, or they would steal them from poor houses or all kinds of different ways. And then they would sell them to the anatomists and they would use them in their medical schools. So um, this trade was going on. It had been going on for decades and they decided, well, we have this body. Nobody's going to claim it. It's just this poor person that's traveling from somewhere. Let's just sell it. So they sold it and they got away with it. And they thought, wow, this is an easy way to make money. And so they started murdering the people that came to board at this house. And I believe it got up to about 16 bodies before they were caught. And uh, Hare ended up turning on, turning King's evidence on Burke. And so Hare got it was let loose, um, although his life was obviously ruined from that point. But, you know, Burke was actually hung for the crime um, and it was just this You know, obviously people were horrified because you know it became this. It became even worse. It grew as the story was told. You know that oh they were murdering people off the streets or you know they were all these different tales, and so it it was kind of a figure of horror. It was this thing that was in everyone's minds. And you know people you know down in London you know they hear about this and they're terrified. You know that that there's people roaming the streets just killing people to sell them to the anatomists. So it was very much a Um, present in the news kind of thing, the boogeyman kind of of that era. Thank you.
1: That's a really good summary. Are are there any incidents or characters I haven't mentioned that you'd like our listeners to know about? I have to say Bonnie Brock Kincaid is a particular favorite of mine, but he doesn't appear in this particular (laughs) book. So if you'd like to tell us a little bit about him, I'd love it.
0: I know. Readers love Bonnie Brock, and I do too. He's just so much fun. And funnily enough, when I first wrote him, he was supposed to be just like one scene and he showed up and he was like, nope, I'm sticking around Laugh, you know. (laughs) So um, he is the leader of one of Edinburgh's biggest criminal gangs, and he is just oh, he's a charming hoot and he's just a bad guy, but you just can't help but love him and. He kind of teams up with Kira and Gage um, to help solve some crimes. So he's like reluctantly a friend of theirs, I guess, um, because he has done some bad things in the past. And so he but he's up in Edinburgh, so he doesn't really feature in the latest book. Um, I would say in the latest book, one of the things that I found really interesting was the fact that um this era area, excuse me, um, that Wentbridge is in, it's actually the medieval vale of Barnsdale, And when I was doing my research, I discovered it's actually the original place that Robin Hood was said to come from. The earliest ballads, actually, um, the earliest surviving manuscripts of those Robin Hood ballads, you know. They mention Wentbridge and this Vale of Barnsdale as being the place where Robin Hood operated, and there's all kinds of sites in the area that are still attributed. There's a there's a church that's supposedly where he married, made Marian, and, and all these different things. And I just couldn't resist using that. I was like, I have to use this in some way because that's just kind of fun knowledge. We all think of you know the Sherwood Forest, forest, but it, the original was the um, Vale of Barnsdale near Wentbridge. So I thought that was just really interesting.
1: Yes, that was a fun element. And I had not known that before I read it in your books. um, So I I enjoyed it too. What would you like people to
0: take away from the Lady Darby mysteries? Well, obviously, because they're fiction and they're mysteries, you know, I I want it to be entertaining. Um, But also, you know, for me, the stories are really about the characters and their journey and their growth and their triumph over hardship. And I, I hope that readers find encouragement in different ways. Um, I've I've received letters from readers, you know, I try to highlight different social aspects or eras in history or things that, you know, might and try to, you know, there's always some way that you connect can connect the past to the present, you know, everything that's happened has happened before in some way, you know, so. If if people can take something away from that and, and apply it to their own lives or their own healing or their own you know journey, um, I just that that would I'd be thrilled. That's what I would love. I'd love it to be able to touch some people in different ways that it's applicable to their own lives. As I mentioned at the very beginning
1: of the interview, you also have a second series featuring Verity Kent, which is very different, as well as other books. And I was going to ask if you alternated them, but you mentioned that you're working on the next Lady Darby now. How is that going?
0: <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah the Verity Kent series is World War 1 uh, post World War 1 she was a spy for the British intelligence so yeah it's a very different series it's only 90 years apart but uh, very very different field because you know everything speeds up with technology and and so the the time of 1920s is very different from 1830s but uh you know, I do alternate usually. My schedule got a little bit differently this time because my publisher of my Verity Kent series asked me to actually write a straight historical fiction novel on the Titanic. So they wanted that faster. So that book um, I wrote when I would have been writing the next Verity Kent. And so that, that book is called Sisters of Fortune. It comes out um, in spring of next year. And right now I am writing the next Lady Darby, which will come out next summer, Lady Darby 12. And then after Lady Darby 12, I'll be writing Verity Kent book seven, which will come out next autumn. So there will be more Verity Kent, at least three more books in that series. Um, it just got bumped because of this other book I got asked to write. You sound like you're very busy. Uh, I am. It's been a very crazy year. <laughs> Especially shoehorning in this other book. So, um, but I'm I'm just so grateful. I I love what I get to do and it's just a blessing, you know, that readers keep reading and and publishers keep offering contracts and I'm just very, very grateful that I get to do what I love and I'm telling myself stories in my head all day long and I just happen to get to write them down <laughs> and make a living off it.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's been a great pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.
1: And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Anna Lee Huber about A Fatal Illusion and the previous novels in her Lady Darby series. Find out more about her at annaleehuber.com. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.